The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. May I help you? Yeah, I'd like to cancel my mail. Certainly. How long would you like us to hold it? I want out permanently. I'll handle this, Violet. Why don't you take your three-hour break? <laughs> I turned down, everyone. No one's canceling any mail. Oh, yes, I am. Well, what about your bills? The bank can pay them. The bank? Mm. And then, well, what about your cards and letters? Email, telephones, fax machines, FedEx, Telex, telegrams, holograms. All right, it's true. Of course nobody needs mail. What, what do you think? You're so clever figuring out one out? But you don't know the half of what goes on here. So just walk away, Kramer. I beg of you. Is everything all right here, postal employee Newman? <laughs> yes, sir. I believe everything is all squared away. Isn't it, Mr. Kramer? Oh, yeah. As long as I stop getting mail. <laughs> Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 23rd, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, the number that you can always call to reach us if, with your comments and opinions on the air, right with us on the show, or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today we've got a number of subjects on our smorgasbord, eh, Robert? Yes, indeed. It looks like an interesting show. Yeah. Is socialism a dirty word? Or yes. Or is it the same thing <laughs> by any other name? We'll be talking about that near the end of the show. Also, sacrifice, values, and choice. And we're going to be talking about broken windows at the CBC. I wonder what you mean by that. And, of course, we're first going to start off the show with first-class male, second-class citizens. Hey, Robert, is that about the A timely topic, yeah. Everybody knows that there's a, a, a lockout. and uh, Everyone a in Canada. Everyone in Canada, yeah. yeah. We do have listeners outside of Canada. So for those people outside of Canada, there's a postal strike going on here. Coast to coast, not just rotating. That's right. It's a complete shutdown. And um, I wonder if people know that over the past 46 years, since the formation of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, CUPW, there have been 20 work stoppages at Canada Post. And most of these happened in the 1970s and 80s, and I, I still remember the turmoil that went on right there because my family works at the post office, a number of them do. And recently, there's been little disruption in service, for say, for the past 14 years. It hasn't been too mm -hmm. uncivilized. If I can use the word service to describe mail delivery in this country, that is. However... I think there's a reason for that. I think why, why it's been a little more civilized recently. What's your opinion on that? It's because they've been getting everything they want. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, what will happen when they stop getting everything they want? Well, they go out and strike, don't they? Well, or worse, as we've seen in the past. There's another theory. What's that? And that is they don't want to upset the boat for fear that... Um, the people out there finally realize what uh, Kramer realized on Seinfeld, is that we really don't need the National the uh, Canada Post. Well, we certainly don't need a monopoly. I do that's think right. we need a mail service. Oh, I agree with you. And as a matter of fact, that's what I'll be talking about right mm -hmm. now. Now, technology, as you know, as, as we mentioned mm -hmm. on that uh, clip from Seinfeld, it's, it's 
has passed Canada Post by, I think, even though they, they make efforts to uh, keep up with it. In fact, they've taken steps outside of its legislated mandate, in my opinion, to expand its product range. On October 26th of last year, it launched a comparison shopping service, believe it or not, called Canada Post Comparison Shopper. A real catchy name. Well, let me sign up for that right away, gee. Now, that allows (laughs) shoppers to find and compare products from over 500 stores across the United States and Canada. Now, this intrusion into the private realm of price comparison websites is, to me, a clear overreach of a government monopoly's position and not at all mandated in the Canada Post Corporation Act. Mm. This use of its resources will undoubtedly take businesses from Business from private sites like uh, PriceGrabber.ca, PriceCanada.com, which have been around for years offering the same service. Why do we need the post office intruding into this private business, this private service, which has nothing to do, only ancillary perhaps, with the delivery of first-class mail in this country? Now, this isn't the first foray outside uh, CPC's mandate to deliver mail, CBC Canada Post Mm -hmm. Corporation. In 2000... It created ePost, a service allowing customers to receive bills online for free, competing directly with banks, which also provide the same service. And that's what I use to pay all my bills, the bank. And I just clipped this particular thing from the, uh, the entire page from the National Post. Ad. What was that? Just two days ago, I think. Uh, the 22nd. No, yesterday. And it says, an important message to Canada Post customers. We apologize for the inconvenience being caused by the current postal disruption. We know many companies, private out there, are asking you to sign up to receive your bills electronically. But we offer a better way. One password, one login, your bills all in one place. Now, why? One monopoly. One monopoly. (laughs) Why in the name of God would the Canada Post, which is mandated to deliver letter mail and letter post internationally, why would they get involved in something like this, which is being handled very well by other private companies? Because I think it sees the writing on the wall, just like Kramer and Seinfeld, as they have to protect their bureaucracy. They have to protect their huge, huge employee well, well, sure, base. The, the amount of mail being delivered has dropped precipitously of, of what we call oh, yeah. hard copy. Mm-hmm. And so they have to move into other services if they want to survive as a corporation and maintain the same level of management and employees and, and what have you. Now, you told me yesterday that the pensions of most of the employees at Canada Post are under, uh, under, underfunded. Yes. To the tune of how much did you say? Well, I heard, I heard an investment counselor saying he suggested $500 million. That's a, that's, million? Yeah. Or billion? Oh, billion, sorry. That's a huge, huge amount. Uh, yeah, 500 million. Yeah. Uh, but it, <laughs> so uh, half a trillion dollar underfunded uh, Well, this plans. is over a long period of time, right? Uh-huh. But the thing is, this is almost Canada Post's only reason to continue existing, is to, to maintain yeah. that pension fund, which is why we don't get mail at our doors anymore. If you have a new home or a... You know, the richer you are, the worse off you are as far as Canada Post goes. You go to these super mailboxes, which I cannot understand. What an oxymoronic, double-speak, double-think, 19 or, you know, Orwellian thing. I just can't believe it. We, we haven't had postal service for many, many years. How did it used to be? I mean, you remember uh, two-day... Do you know something? Yes. In Britain, well, here in London, uh, Canada, there used to be uh, twice-a-day service for six days of the week, right? Mm-hmm. In Britain, there was up to, when it first started, just, uh, well, actually, not when it first started, but about 150 years ago, there was up to 12 
eight deliveries a day. You can carry on a conversation with somebody within the city of London at that, that time, um, going back and forth. 12 times a day. Sure, the post office tended to respond to demand at one point in time, you mm-hmm. know, but it only did one thing. It and this really, was before postal codes. And this was before <laughs> postal codes, before unions, before computerized uh, sorting, before computerized sorting machines, and it was all done manually and done much more efficiently it appears than today, but we don't yeah. even know even then it was said to be inefficient by the standards of the time. Yeah. So we constantly not only get poorer service, but lower our standards along with the poorer service we get. Yeah. That's almost how it's done, you know, like I a healthcare think, system. Yeah. Well, oh, we, we've improved the system because now you only wait for 10 hours instead of 11.2, you know, that <laughs> Before, kind of thing. Okay, except for dying on the table. Yes. I don't think that time has been better for uh, the, either the complete privatization of Canada Post or the removal of its monopoly on the delivery of letter mail. You know, all that would be required other than a government with guts and brains to act, that is, is a repeal of Section 14 of the Canada Post Corporation Act, which states, and I'm quoting, the corporation has the sole and exclusive privilege of collecting, transmitting, and delivering letters to the addressees uh, thereof within Canada. In other words, it is against the law for anybody in this country to deliver what they call letter mail, which is clearly defined in the act. I think it's 30 grams now, or 50 grams or less. First class. uh, First class letter mail. You cannot deliver it as against the law. Sure, it's technically illegal to to take a Christmas card across to your neighbor and drop it in his mailbox. Uh, Actually, no, not in Canada. Not in Canada? Not in Canada. A friend can actually drop off something in somebody else's mailbox. But you have to be a friend. That's what it says right in the act. A friend. Well, I didn't say I was a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Then that's against the law. That is against the law in Canada to put uh, that in the box if it could have been sent by post. It's as simple as that. Repeal that section on the... Uh, well, and, what do you do today with Facebook? You have 5,000 friends. <laughs> <laughs> friends in quotes. I can prove it, sir, <laughs> Mr. Postmaster General. You know, As it stands now, it's against the law for a private company to deliver letter mail. Simple as that. Now, in the United States, that bastion of freedom, haha, the monopoly laws are even more restrictive. Did you know that in that country, it's against the law for anyone to deposit anything in somebody's mailbox? And their mailboxes are defined down there. Uh, a slot in the door is not a mailbox. You, anybody can put anything in there or between the doors. Was well, that right? But if you put your hand in a mailbox, even if it's owned by the person and it's on their house and they paid for it, you put your hand in, or anything in that mailbox, that's against the law. Boy Scouts have been fined for dropping off stuff, um, you know. Cookies uh, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's just ludicrous. Now, other countries like uh, the Netherlands and Germany have already completely privatized postal delivery. So it can be done. No, that's, that's, you would think that in the midst of this big debate in Canada, wouldn't that be a big headline everywhere? Look at it, it's being done here. Yeah. What's the big surprise? You yeah. know, we, we, we isolate ourselves and say, oh, it can't be done, never been done before. Oh, it gets oh, we better. Oh, it's better. Okay. Still, even more countries have opened up competition in the area of letter mail delivery as they're having Great Britain, Finland, New Zealand, Sweden, and the 27 member nations of the European Union have all agreed to end their mail monopolies in the near future as part of the uh, terms of union with, within Europe. So, why does Canada resist? What is this country coming to when we have to look to socialist Europe for examples of how government monopolies should compete or get out of the business altogether. The U.S. is certainly no example in this area. 
there is then the mistake, mistaken belief that Canada Post actually makes a profit. With billions of dollars, as we just mentioned, in unfunded pensions, Canada Post is so far in the hole that it can never dig itself out, no matter how it pretends to show a surplus every year. Every time they have a surplus, what well, all they've done is done some fancy bookkeeping. They've segregated yep. capital costs from operating costs, or segregated pension costs from operating costs, yep. and then they put them all under separate things which is what they're going to start doing now in the city with our garbage collection and taxes yeah. and all that. Oh, That's a that pure out. sign of a ripoff. Oh, indeed. That's major. Like, hello, we're ripping you off. Yeah, only Paul Van Meerbergen, I think, was the yeah. only counselor. There's maybe one other who recognizes that. Uh, Federal Labor Minister Lisa Raitt and the Conservative government's solution to this latest work stoppage, I think, is wrong-headed. The legislation she should have introduced is not back-to-work legislation, but a repeal of Section 14 of the Canada of Post Act. She should let Cup W and Canada Post argue all they want. Go ahead, boys, have at it, you know. Go on strike, lock yourselves out, you know, and knock yourselves out in the process. Let them hold up mail delivery all they want. They've been if, doing it for decades. If private... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's sitting down on my super mailbox. <laughs> By the way, do you know it's against the law to inhibit a postman or, the, or delay any mail? I think everybody I didn't in Canada know that Post. Was possible. Yeah, <laughs> not delay it any further. Yeah. But it's actually against law in that Canada yeah. Post Act to delay uh, the delivery of any mail, and that includes uh, trying to collect a toll if the, if the Canada Post truck is going over a bridge. Stopping the truck to get, get a toll is not a reasonable uh, uh, delay. Wow. Or for paying a ferry charge, you can't stop a postman in his uh, course. They have a lot of little special rights, eh? Yeah. Now, let them fight all they want. If private firms were allowed to deliver the mail instead, I think that within days, within days of uh, repealing Section 14, the courier companies would be up and ready to take the place of those dinosaurs of Cup W and Canada Post. You know, without a strong government willing to end Canada Post monopoly, this country will be left behind as the rest of the world transforms their delivery systems into modern and private entities, separate from government monopolies and immune from organized labor's monopoly. Those both of those monopolies are what's just making this country sure. look like uh, a dinosaur when it comes to the rest of the world. We're moving on. And I think we should move on. We have come to a break right now. Yeah, um, you know, what happens when unions, as, as we asked at the beginning, what would happen when unions don't get what they want? You know, it already sounds like it might shape up to be a bigger deal than what we're seeing so far. Some of the unions are screaming, Har Harper is anti-labor. Mm -hmm. And um, the offer he's made them apparently is less than what the post office offered them to begin with. Yes. So I, I see that as possible trouble. It would be amazing to me if the unions accepted these terms. And my question is, what will happen if they don't keep getting what they want? That's why it's been quiet lately. And I think that's why it's been quiet on the international war front, too, with Al-Qaeda and all those groups for us, relatively. It's because they've been getting what they want. Yeah. As soon as we stop giving them what they want, we'll hear from them. And I think that's amazingly what might happen. Um, you know, will they be satisfied with uh, just injuring their employers, or will they resort to political and social unrest and violence? And it's happened before in the past. And last time I remember, very explicitly, was during the rotating postal strikes. And I'm thinking this is 1987, 1988 or so. Oh, yes. And um, strikers destroyed postal operating equipment. And that was on York Street that they trashed here, here, the place. Here in London, yes. And it wasn't only here. It was in Montreal as well and other oh. places, sorting stations across the country. 
And in response, on the days that the workers were working, because it was a rotating strike, uh, Freedom Party actually picketed the post office. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Back when it was on York Street there. And so when we, as we go to this break, what you'll be hearing is the news item from TV London at the time, and we'll be back right after this. In London, we're still on the job today, but there were pickets outside the post office. The London-based Freedom Party staged an information picket line to denounce the violence that has marred the postal strike. Freedom Party members paraded in front of the York Street post office with placards condemning picket line violence. A spokesman for the Freedom Party says it's an absolute disgrace that postal workers are proud of their actions. We feel the only long-term solution is a free market competition in our postal services. The other message is to the strikers themselves, and that we condemn the use of the violence and the coercion and vandalism as a means of labor negotiations. We just don't agree with that. And if they're not going to come out and condemn it themselves, that is the union and the members who disagree, then they're just implicitly sanctioning it. Steckley says postal workers should not be allowed to strike, nor should others who want to work be denied the opportunity to replace those who would rather walk a picket line. Mike Larian, TV London News. Call me Henry. Henry Atkins? The Postmaster General? Last time I checked. Can I get out of here now? Oh, 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 sit a bit. Sit a bit. I mean, after all, I drove all the way up here from D.C. just to talk to you. Oh, I even had to cancel a round of golf with the Secretary of State. Do you like golf, Mr. Kramer? Yeah. Mr. Kramer, I've been uh, reading some of your material here. i got to be honest with you. You make a pretty strong case. I mean, just imagine an army of men in wool pants running through the neighborhood handing out pottery catalogs door to door. <laughs> well, it's my job. And I'm pretty damn serious about it. In addition to being a postmaster, I'm a general. And we both know it's the job of a general to, by God, get things done. <laughs> so maybe you can understand why I get a little irritated when somebody calls me away from my golf. I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. Sure you're sorry. I think we got a stack of mail out there at the desk that belongs to you. Now, you want that mail, don't you, Mr. Crank? Sure do. <laughs> now, that's better. That's pretty funny, Bob. That's from Seinfeld again. And that was actually the Postmaster General in yes, that clip, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, he actually it? made a guest appearance. <laughs> For a strange part, really, if you if you think about it. Yeah, considering they're spoofing his actual job. Yes. Now, on to the next section, which is another monopoly, sort of a monopoly, I guess, or protected industry in Canada. As with Canada Post, the CBC should be another government corporation on the auction block. Except that unlike mail delivery, the CBC could fold tomorrow, and few of us would miss it, in my opinion. In fact, it could be argued that the country would be far better off without the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and its band of 
in my mind, self-righteous liberal blowhards. <laughs> just to be uh, just in your mind, just yeah. to be kind to them. <laughs> yeah. So none of those self-righteous liberal blowhards would miss it, then, eh? <laughs> that was because only the few of those up there. Well, yeah, but the CBC is not exactly what I'd like to talk about next. To tell you the truth, I only want to use it as an example of an economic theory called the broken window fallacy, or the parable of the broken window, and it goes like this. Now, this has nothing to do with the broken window theory with regards to crime. This is a whole different thing. No, that's a broken window theory where if you find a broken window, as soon as you repair it, um, hoodlums are less likely I to I know there are vandalize. people out there who think that, the first, first thing they hear when they hear that. That was my reaction. Yeah. Now, this broken window is not that criminal mm -hmm. theory. This has to do with the economics. And I'm going to quote here from Henry Hazlitt, who wrote this in 1946. Quote, a young hoodlum, say, heaves a brick through the window of a baker's shop. The shopkeeper runs out furious, but the boy is gone. A crowd gathers and begins to stare with quiet satisfaction at the gaping hole in the window and the shattered glass over the bread and pies. After a while, the crowd feels the need for philosophic reflection, and several of its members are almost certain to remind each other or the baker that, after all, the misfortune has its bright side. It'll make business for some glazier. As they begin to think of this, they elaborate upon it. How much does a new plate of glass window cost? $250? That'll be quite a sum. After all, if windows were never broken, what would happen to the glass business? Then, of course, the thing is endless. The glazier will have $250 more to spend with other merchants, and these in turn will have $250 more to spend with still other merchants, and so add on ad infinitum. The smashed window will go on providing money and employment in ever-widening circles. The logical conclusion from all this would be, if the crowd drew it, that the little hoodlum who threw the brick, far from being a public menace, was a public benefactor. Now let's take another look. The crowd is at least right in its first conclusion. This little act of vandalism will in the first instance mean more business for some glazier. The glazier will be no more happy to learn of the incident than an undertaker to learn of a death. But the shopkeeper will be out $250 that he was planning to spend for a new suit. Because he has had to replace a window, he'll have to go without the suit or some equivalent need or luxury. Instead of having a window and $250, he now has merely a window. Or, as he was planning to buy the suit that very afternoon, instead of having both a window and a new suit, he must be content with the window and no suit. If we think of him as part of the community, the community has lost a new suit that might otherwise have come into being and is just that much poorer. The glazier's gain of business, in short, is merely the tailor's loss of business. No new employment has been added. The people in the crowd were thinking only of two parties to the transaction, the baker and the glazier. They had forgotten the potential third party involved, the tailor. They forgot him precisely because he will not now enter the scene. They will see the new window in the next day or two. They'll never see the extra suit precisely because it will never be made. They see only what is immediately visible to the eye. Now that was an excerpt from Henry mm -hmm. Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, the broken window fallacy was first conceived by the French economist and statesman Frederick Bastiat, who wrote it in 1848 in an essay entitled, in the English, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen. 
Now, in over 150 years, that lesson has yet to be learned. Now, common examples of the broken window fallacy are war is good for the economy. Oh, I hear that all the time. Don't you? Yeah. yeah. Government <laughs> stimulus spending or inflation as a means to stimulate the economy. That's a big one we're dealing with right now. And economist Stephen Harper obviously has not learned the lessons from Frederick Bastiat or Henry Hazlitt. Public work projects, another example. Minimum wage laws is another example. Now, what does this have to do with the CBC? On June 18th, in an article in the London Free Press by Brian Lilly, we learned that, quote, the state broadcaster commissioned a study from Deloitte Touche which claims its annual $1.1 billion subsidy generates an additional $2.6 billion in economic activity for the Canadian economy. Unquote. Actually, I love the headline that one of the papers came up with. Uh, actually, the headline of that particular one is, CBC tells just how great it thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> Rather self-serving, for sure. Now, this is wrong on a few levels. First of all, we can think of the ever-widening circle of economic activity as mentioned in the parable. To stop at some arbitrary figure of, say, $2.6 billion from the $1.1 billion spent is just that, completely arbitrary. But that is not the main error of Deloitte and Touche. What is not seen, as Bastiat would have put it, is the effect on the economy if Canadians would have been allowed to keep their $1.1 billion. Spend it the way they would choose. Spend it exactly, Bob. Spend it the way that they chose to do it. They would have spent it on other things, to be sure. Perhaps a new suit would have been one of the millions of items bought, but we will never know. The CBC has taken that money and has spent it on other areas of the economy without our permission, by force. To complete the analogy, what if the glazier had secretly paid the hoodlum to break the, break, uh, the baker's window? He would have been considered a criminal for, for this because he took the baker's money with premeditated malice. And now, how is this different from our government taking our money, knowing full well that they're going to give it to some third party to spend for their own benefit, and we are left poorer for the transaction? The CBC, in this case, is the glazier. We're the baker. Deloitte and Touche would be the unthinking crowd. And the government, the government would, of course, be the hoodlum, as it always it is. It always is. It's the agency of force that's sitting in the middle of it all. You know, it's like arguing that graffiti is good for business. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you, <laughs> you have to hire people to clean it up, right? But where are you after you cleaned up the graffiti? Are you any further ahead of where you started? No, you haven't produced anything. That's right. You, you know, Isabel Patterson said if you if you only got one potato back for every one you planted, that wouldn't be a very productive crop, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how governments think. As a matter um, of fact, there's there's hundreds of examples of this, and I think that the biggest fallacy out there is the trillion-dollar so-called stimulus spending that Barack Obama has used um, to, uh, as he says, stimulates the economy. Robert, the whole concept of job creation is that fallacy. Yeah. Whenever I hear a politician say, I want to create jobs, and I know Joe Fontana is saying that, and I know sometimes they don't mean it directly, like mm -hmm. I'm not going to go out and pay for those jobs, and that's okay, but be careful when you hear them, because 
jobs are not the objective. It's what the people are producing that should be the objective. Is the product you're producing needed by the marketplace? That's, exactly. that's what creates the wealth. Either a, a product has to be created, a physical, tangible product, or a service has to be, has to be offered. That's real wealth, not money. Money is not wealth. It is a means of exchange only. Now, when Barack Obama and Stephen Harper go in there and start off well, printing it's money... it's more than that, but I know what you mean. Well, to break it down to essentials, for this argument at least. Um, when they go out there and they start printing money, or borrowing money, or creating debt in order to so-called stimulate the economy, what they're in fact doing is devaluing the currency. Prices have to arise eventually, as they will, uh, to compensate. Nothing has been created... No, nothing has been produced. There is no services that have been created. What has been destroyed is people's choices. They've taken that money either through taxation or through inflation and rising prices of everything. And they have left people without the choice to make the decisions of where they should have spent that money in the first place. It is a distortion yeah, of the so economy. Today's to, it's know. diversion of the it's money. All, it's all putting our bills on the backs of our kids. That's all it is. Please. Today's stimulus is tomorrow's debt for some poor kid that hasn't even gotten out of school yet and has to earn a living and has to raise a family and do all the things earlier generations did without those burdens. You on know, them. I got the impression when the, when we had that downturn in the economy that uh, Stephen Harper really didn't want to do that stimulus. stimulus. Stuff. As a matter of fact, remember, his budget didn't include much of it. And then the liberals under Ignatiev said, you've got to include some stimulus spending. So in order to keep the peace and his minority government, I think he reluctantly put some spending in there. Though I don't I'd know. like to think it was that. But, I would like to too, but, but I'm but not too sure This will be it. the term that, that tells the secret, doesn't it? Yeah. Now as we approach the bottom of the hour, I'm just going to a little mm -hmm. preface uh, one of the clips that we're just coming up with now, just as an example of the broken glass theory, the broken window theory. People who are familiar with the Bruce Willis uh, movie, The Fifth Element, will recognize this yeah, clip. I haven't seen it yet. No, you haven't. No, no. I think you'd enjoy it. It's just a bit of a light romp, that's how it is. But uh, in this particular case, you have Zorg, I think his name was, the evil guy, okay. breaks a glass to demonstrate how destruction creates jobs, how destruction creates wealth, or creates life in this case. And of course, it is the fallacy that what he's really done is just simply break a glass. The people involved in cleaning it up would have done something else if he had not broken the glass. Yeah, he's just misdirected their otherwise productive labor that's into right. something non-productive. It's a diversion. Yes. That's right. So that's the broken window parable. And uh, we'll be back after the uh, bottom of the hour breaks. Life, which you so nobly serve, comes from destruction, disorder, and chaos. Now take this empty glass. Here it is, peaceful, serene, boring. But if it is destroyed... all these little things. So busy now. Notice how each one is useful. What a lovely ballet ensues, so full of form and color. Now, think about all those people that created them. Technicians, engineers, hundreds of people who will be able to feed their children tonight so those children can grow up big and strong and have little teeny wind children of their own and so on and so forth. Thus, adding to the great chain of life. You see, Father, by creating a little destruction, I'm in fact encouraging life.
understand your sacrifice, Captain. Unfortunately, if our friend out there has its way, no one will ever know what you tried to do. Tamarian was willing to risk all of us, just for the hope of communication, connection. Now the door is open between our peoples. That commitment meant more to him than his own life. And that was from an episode of um, Next Generation called Darmok, one of the strangest episodes I've ever watched. Robert. One of my favorite, actually. Um, I've watched it a few times. The first time I watched it, I said, what the hell was that about? You know, because it was, they ran into a, a civilization who they couldn't actually understand, even with all their technology and their translators. It, it, it translated the words, but not the meaning. They were speaking in parables. Yes, well, and, in, and in allegories. And they would say, like, you know, name two people in a place. And, like, if we were going to say that McGinty and Harper had a meeting in, in Ottawa, we would say, you know, Harper and McGinty at Ottawa. That's how they spoke in this. And you had to figure out what the story was about. But the interesting thing was it, it had a sad ending in, the, in a way because it was about a meeting between two civilizations, two captains, and the one captain gave his life for having the meeting to make this to make it happen to get the communication broken and that's why um captain picard says uh you know i understand your sacrifice but he maybe didn't agree with it you know like it wasn't necessary we could have talked you know <laughs> but that wasn't the way they thought but he did say at the end he says you know this fellow thought about that his goal was more important than his life and that it's funny i happened to watch that just as we were thinking about this issue because um you know, socialism and government and sacrifice. People, people misuse the term sacrifice, uh, and I think to their own detriment. Uh, most people confuse sacrifice with virtue, uh, believing that acts of sacrifice result in everything from, from good parenting to good citizenship. You know, you, it, that's, almost, that's almost really, if you think about it, how they judge good parenting or good citizenship. How, how much did you sacrifice for your kids? How much did you sacrifice for your country? Or, or they believe that sacrifice means or relates to some sort of giving or kindness or charity. And this is simply not true. And I'm not just saying this to be picky about a word. Because words have a meaning. And if you don't understand the meaning, even though you intend something else, you should not be surprised by what happens. got an interesting letter. And this is actually what spurred the whole thing over the past few weeks or so. Not, a, not addressed to me, but not here at the, at the station or to the show, but to me at uh, Freedom Party International, which is, of course, not a political party, but a philosophical organization, about this very subject. And the letter was from a fellow named Ernie, and he wrote as follows, and he said, I have read your statement of belief, and I'm interested in your philosophy, but do have a question as follows. In your statement of beliefs, you say it is vile to sacrifice oneself for others, end quote. If that is as it sounds, then how do you justify volunteers sacrificing their resources for victims of natural disasters, parents sacrificing for their children, doctors sacrificing for their patients, which, by the way, they are doing and they shouldn't be, but that's another story, soldiers sacrificing for their country, and Christ sacrificing for mankind. And he says, thank you for taking time to reply to my concern, which I felt obligated to do when he thanked me already. <laughs> so I said, so I replied to Ernie, and I said, you know, when, when we use the word sacrifice, this means, and this is very important, it means giving up 
a greater value for a lesser value. I mean, after all, if you get something a greater value, you know, for a lesser value, then that's not a sacrifice, is it? That's a gain. Nobody right. would question that. So obviously a sacrifice is the opposite of that, getting something less for something greater. But I said that the situations that were described by Ernie do not indicate a giving up of a greater value for a lesser value, and so you can't call them sacrifices. And this has ramifications. It has all kinds of moral implications. Those kind of quote-unquote sacrifices that Ernie talked about, really, you know, they really only reflect choices, voluntary choices among a given set of options. Are you suggesting perhaps that there's no such thing as sacrifice? Oh, no, there is when you're forced to make one. It's, and that, we'll get into that in a second. So when force is involved, there is sacrifice. Almost always. So in other words, people don't sacrifice, people are sacrificed. In a way. Hmm. You know, I asked him, I said, should I buy that cottage up north that I've been wanting for years, or should I put that money aside for the kid's education? You know, but there's no sacrifice in such a choice if, if, if the choice is voluntary. If the parent chooses to save for his child's education rather than buy a cottage, it would be morally dishonest to say that he sacrificed the cottage for his child's education. Because look at it the other way around. Had the parent, the same parent, opted instead um, you know, to buy a cottage instead of saving for his child's education, you could easily say, he said, well, he sacrificed his child's education for, for a vacation getaway. You know, right? you know what it's making me think of? People, but, but both uh, would be wrong, by the way. Neither is a sacrifice. Oh, I agree. Yeah. But people use the word sacrifice when they don't know the motivations of the other person. They probably would have said, I would have chosen the cottage, so you made a sacrifice. Hmm. That's a good point. Never look at it that way. When, in fact, <laughs> or it you didn't. Or seen as a sacrifice. Certainly that... when we see a soldier... Um, you know, dying in a war, we yeah. call it a sacrifice. But if you talk to that soldier, a lot of them, you know, wow, they're they're fighting for a cause. They know what they're there for. Right. The, the higher value to them yes. is, are their actions, what they're doing. Yeah. So, so whatever the choice a person makes, when they make a choice, it always reflects the greater value to the person making it. And that's the problem. It's just like Bastiat said in the window parable. Yes. That which is seen and that which is not seen. Exactly. That which is not seen is the motivations of the person doing the action. And that which is not seen is in, in choices are the choices you didn't make. Exactly. <laughs> See, choices you don't make don't exist. Right. And you can't think of them as existence. E-N-T-S. Existence, okay. yes. Yeah. Um, so you, if you think about all these choices that were never made, you know, some great science fiction is based on that very theme, you know, where especially the time travel ones and the alternate universe ones, where Ugh. where the whole juxtaposition is one choice versus another. What would have happened to this person? Now, life? didn't I mention that to you the other day when I said that the new Twilight Zone yes. just had an episode where a woman is faced with a choice, either have a career or have a child, and what she's visited by this child, this boy comes to her, right, and plays ball with her. And, and then she realizes, oh, my God, this, this boy is actually the child I would have if I went that direction. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I'm very grateful for it, she chose her career because that was such a sentimental show otherwise. Well, it's sentimentality in and of itself to do that as well. And, and, and she didn't make a sacrifice. I mean, that, that's a complete fantasy. You yes. don't have those kind of choices. Of course. And they'll never come up in reality, ever. Don't ever worry about that <laughs> choice coming up. Okay. <laughs> but the point is... That whatever choice is made always reflects the greater value to the person making it, and that, that, that's why they gain. But that's not where, and this is what I wrote to Ernie, and, and, and um, he wrote me back. And this is what he wrote to me on a second letter. 
He said, do I, Mr. Metz, thank you for your reply, and I'm going to skip all the nice stuff. It was a pleasant conversation. Do I understand you correctly if I interpret your comments to mean if someone's forced into a situation, that is considered giving up a greater value for a lesser one, such as paying taxes to a government so that government can then subsidize a lifestyle that the taxpayer might not want to support? or use that tax money to donate to a cause, either local or international, where the donor has little, if any, control on its use. I ask these questions because I have great difficulty paying education taxes to a school board that promotes homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle, so obviously he's opposed to that, when all the evidence points to the fact that the lifestyle is, you know, and he talks about harmful consequences of the lifestyle. Or we see the government being persuaded by all kinds of people who, who themselves likely don't, don't, do not donate money to third world countries but want the government to send millions overseas only to see that money disappear without any accountability. The UN is a good example of that corruption. We look at Haiti where billions have been spent but the poor appear not to have benefited in any way. Private money sent seems to have had much more effect. And that's true. So I answered Mr... Uh, Ernie, I didn't know how to say his last name, don't want, didn't get permission to do that. But uh, actually, he had so many questions here. I said, well, listen, if you want to see how we actually apply all of these policies, you know, check the political sites of, of the Freedom Party. And uh, I also recommend he listen to this show. Maybe he's listening to us today. But, you know, I pointed out some of his questions are really out of the context of our philosophy. For example, since since, you know, we wouldn't believe in the government control or direct financing of education, um, some of the questions just don't fit. But they certainly reflect a lot of, lot of uh, injustices. Um, so, you know, since if, if we believe in private education where other issues related to education don't matter in terms in of whether words, you want religion. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a moot point. And, um, but he was quite correct to conclude that by being forced to subsidize lifestyles via government laws, taxations that he doesn't support, that he had been made or forced to make a sacrifice. In other words, he gave up a greater value to him for a lesser value. So to him, it was a sacrifice. Of course, to the government, it was a gain. But I wonder if it's actually it. a sacrifice in the sense that he was, he was forced to give up his money through the taxation, but if he didn't do that, he would have had his wages garnished. He probably would have paid higher fines, probably even pr imprisoned. Who knows? Well, again, all you're talking about is damage control. <laughs> well, he chose you the know. lesser of the two evils in that case, I guess. So it's still a choice. But it wasn't a choice that would have been a natural choice Correct. in, 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 in an environment of freedom. That's the whole point. Yes. But uh, now that, that whole issue of sacrifice got me thinking about the, the next subject I want to deal with now, and that is... The supposed identity crisis that the NDP had for five minutes there during their convention on the weekend and all the talk that was generated by it about the word socialism and what socialism means either to the party or to we as Canadians. And, uh, but, you know, whatever else you can say about all forms of socialism, the one thing they all bear in common is that they're all anti-capitalist. doesn't matter what what they're pro, but they're definitely anti-capitalist. Because once you're a capitalist, you can't be a socialist in any way. And so to start off that conversation, uh, we're going to hear now from uh, a clip that goes back quite a ways. I'm thinking 
ish. <laughs> I got this off a of tape, so it has a little bit of a of a buzz on it, but it's a compelling conversation. And I don't I don't know how many people remember the Phil Donahue show. Remember that show? I do indeed. Yes, one of the best talk shows. And Phil, of course, was uh, a left winger. Yep. Uh, still is today, from what I understand. Still supports the same kind of causes, asks the same kind of questions. But a very honest man. Yes, and that's why Ayn Rand went on with his, his, on his show more than once, several times, I think. And uh, but in this case, we're speaking to uh, he's speaking to the late Milton Friedman, the the Nobel laureate economist uh, who passed away not too long ago, about a year ago. But this was before his. Um, Free to choose. In, in, yeah, before Free to Choose came out. This was about a year before. And the conversation was very interesting, and it kind of talks about, you know, socialism versus capitalism. And we shall return on the other side of this. When you sit in your study and uh, throughout your, your career as, an ac as a professor, you've met students, and you've, you've probably dealt with every kind of question, stupid, through. I guess I want to know whether you've ever temp been tempted to become politically revolutionary. Here's my question. When you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth, the, the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries, uh, when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you, when you see the greed and the concentration of power within, don't, aren't you ever, did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism? And whether greed's a good idea to run on? Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. And what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. <laughs> we'll let, alone, let alone myself.
Darmok. Darmok. Well, it seems to be a point of contention between them. Perhaps something the Tamarian captain proposed that the first officer didn't like. The apparent emotional dynamic does seem to support that assumption. As with the other terms used by the Tamarian, this appears to be a proper noun. The name clearly carries a meaning for them. A single word can lead to tragedy. One word misspoken or misunderstood. And that could happen here, Data, if we fail. Well, we better not fail, eh? That word we, is socialism. Yeah, and that word is socialism that we'll be talking about. That, it's interesting, that's from the same episode. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the, we were talking about uh, sacrifice there. And uh, it was a very interesting, stimulating program in the sense that it made me think about just how powerful, how, how important a word can be in its effect upon a whole civilization, just by being misunderstood. Or being understood, but in the wrong way. You know, sometimes it's not what you know, but what you, what you don't know. You know, and um, but this all came up, and I, I heard that the NDP at their at their last convention was that last weekend or the weekend before? I already forgot. Um, what were, were, it was put on the floor. Maybe they want to drop the word socialist from their constitution. And my first thought was, and replace it with what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are you going to replace it with? <laughs> and and. But, but, but it tells a story, and I think, you know, tyranny by any other name would smell, smell just as bad. I don't think it's an identity crisis, but a moral crisis. And what happens with words, certain words, and you and I have seen it with other words, like whole language, when, when we were in, you know, fighting in the whole education system. Mm -hmm. As soon as people figured out what the word meant and they realized, ah, get away from that, they changed the word. Yep. And they call it child-centered learning, or they went on. They have a, like a hundred words that mean the same thing, and every time the victims discover what the word means, so they'll stop being victimized by it. They change the word, but not the action and not the meaning. It's, it's double speak. It's it's completely amazing. It's just stunning. It's how like it, trying to have a square peg put into a round hole. Is. The only way to do it is with force. And calling yourself a round peg is not going to change your nature. And that's exactly what her, uh, Leighton is doing. They want yeah. to change. Um, assume that they're going to change their nature by changing the well, word. Well, he, he didn't vote for, for changing the Actually, word. Actually, you're right, he okay. didn't. Okay, so it was, it was some, others, some other delegates yes. on the floor, yeah. And, um, and, and it's a good thing they didn't change the word, but, you know, the science that determines what a word means is known as epistemology. We talk about it all the time. Mm, concept formation. How words came into being and how they acquired their meaning is no accident, and it's not arbitrary. You know, what's that language people try to make up all the time? You know, Esperanto. Esperanto and all that. They just don't get it. They don't even understand basic epistemology. You cannot do that. And, and though while the words chosen obviously vary, say, from language to language, right, the concepts don't. Concepts present themselves. They make themselves necessary. Once you, if you didn't have, if you never had a TV set in your life, you don't need a word that says TV set. You don't need that concept. But as soon as you're presented with that box with a picture in it and a sound that comes out of it, you need a word. Not the words, the concept. You can pick any word you want, but it's the concept that counts. And words have a history and that comes from previous meanings. And that's a whole study in and of itself. But it's interesting. Um, NDP has identity crisis rights, writes David Aiken in the London Free Press, June 20th. Uh, 1,500 delegates of Canada's New Democratic Party wrapped up their 50th anniversary party, committed as they has, have been since its creation in 61 to the principles of democratic socialism, quote-unquote, leaving aside for another day a decision to shed socialism for the more moderate term, 
Social Democrats. The word socialism scares some people, and our opponents use it against us, said, an ND, said NDP MP Pat Martin, who argued in favor of the constitutional changes. This is a party deeply divided and has a good health, healthy identity crisis on its hands as to whether or not they should continue to exist as an independent party and whether or not they should continue to call themselves socialists, said Heritage Minister James Moore, who was designated the Conservative Party's official observer at the weekend-long convention. Uh, do you know that, that they, that they de- designate other political party reps at, at their conventions? To tell you the truth, Bob, I'm not following the NDP no, convention. Well, I, I didn't even know they would do that. <laughs> Leighton, though, dismissed Moore's conclusion. Ridiculous. I think our position on the issues is crystal clear. It's very much opposed to the conservative agenda. We're going to propose practical solutions. So, in other words, the position of the NDP is to be opposed to the conservatives. (laughs) So, (laughs) if you want to find out what the NDP stands for, you're going to have to go to the conservative website and read everything there and then say, no, 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 and then that's the NDP. Is it's like defining it? yourself as Canadian by being anti-American. That's Well, that almost fits, doesn't it? Yeah. And then our favorite uh, writer, Warren Kinsella, who we picked on last week, June 20th, writes in the Free Press, NDP going through identity crisis. The quote-unquote new Democrats, as noted previously, are neither new nor democratic. Now, that's true. That is true. Take, for example, the party's recent semantic gymnastics on whether they are socialist or not. Personally, the word socialist doesn't really upset me all that much. Well, no surprise there. The Merriam-Webster people define socialism. I notice he he says the Merriam-Webster people, not the dictionary. (laughs) You know, socialists think that way. Interesting. Uh, Everything you see, you know. But wordily, as, quote, any of the various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods, end quote. And he says, the way I see it, stupid decisions get made by both governments and businesses all the time, so it's kind of hard to get all worked up about whether something is socialist or not. When you start getting rid of the stuff that makes you what you are, people stop voting for you. It's simple. They don't know what you stand for anymore, and neither do you. Well, that I agree with. But his comment on socialism, he dismisses the definition as though it doesn't have any meaning. That's why he said Merriam-Webster people, because he made the definition subjective. Exactly. You beat me to it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what he's done is, okay, well, you don't have to listen to that definition because, you know, I'm going to play along with this, with this whole fraud, right? But if you ever hear anybody talking about redistributing goods, my goodness, that's called stealing. We call that stealing if it's done involuntarily. The one defining characteristic of socialism that nobody ever mentions, at least the anti-NDP, is that you have to initiate force in order to be a socialist. Yes. That is it. You have to initiate it. You have the one to. You have, you have to, to be, be the bully. first one to hold the gun to somebody's right. head. You have that's to be socialism, and, and that's what separates it from capitalism, which only operates on defensive force, the use of force, legitimate. Uh, it operates on consent. Yes, and on consent. Now, this one from the London Free Press, David Aiken again, NDP quashes anti-Israel line at the convention. And, of course, this is something they tried to bury, too. On the first day of their convention, they argued about the policies on Israel, some calling it an apartheid state and others pushing to support the so-called Gaza-bound Freedom Flotilla. Behind-the-scenes moderates were among the the party's leadership were frantically trying to prevent any anti-Israel motions from being debated on the convention floor this weekend on live TV. Wouldn't want the public to see what they're all about, right? I just think (laughs) that's a little funny. In a close to the media... 
Policy Workshop, NDP Deputy Leader Libby Davies was pushing to have the party declare its support for the Freedom Flotilla that intends to deliver aid this month to Palestinians in Gaza, despite prohibitions from Israel to do so. Davies, no, Davies' motion was prevented from reaching the convention floor where it would have been debated on live national television, end quote. Now, I find it interesting that, you know, in his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, which, by the way, I recommend, you have to go out and get, by author Kevin Williamson. And he writes in there, he says, quote, Hitler was known to protest, quote, that the Jew is not a socialist, end quote, in explaining his anti-Semitism. Hmm. So that was one of his excuses for hating Jews. And, of course, when it comes down to um, the whole issue of communism and socialism, uh, they're the same thing. There's no difference. Correct. Ayn Rand, used, she would say, you know, there's no difference between the two except in the means of achieving the end. Communism proposes to enslave men by force, totally writing out socialism by vote. And it's merely the difference between murder and suicide, she said. The result is the same, yeah, death. So, in other words, it is possible to vote for socialism, but once it is entrenched, it is impossible to vote out socialism because socialism is ruled by force. You know, one person, one vote, one time. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> and that was the very problem that the Germans faced under Hitler. Voters paved the way for Hitler by having supported socialism since the beginning of the 20th century. You could vote Hitler into power, but that was the end of the road. You know, anything you could call democracy after that didn't exist anymore because socialism is incompatible with democracy. And, to, and that the most socialist party in Canada would call itself New Democratic is the biggest lie going. They're, that's why they cannot be democratic. You cannot be a democratic party and be socialist at the same time. They're two totally different meanings. Socialism leads only to a political condition known as tyranny and can't possibly head in any other direction. So basically, you know, just to wrap up, Rand says that socialism is the doctrine, that, and it's a doctrine, that no man has a right to exist for his own sake, getting back to the selfishness and, and sacrifice and altruism, and that his life don't belong to him but belong to society. And that's exactly how the NDP talks. So, uh, you know, it's a denial of individual property rights, and, you know, she says, too, she says there's no difference between the principles, policies, and practical results of socialism. Um, she says socialism is merely democratic, absolute monarchy. So that's it for today, and we've got to get out of here, you know. Uh, and we hope you'll be back next week to join us again on our journey in the right direction. More on socialism, more on government, and who knows. See you next week. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be <laughs> Newman? I guess Listen, I want you to get the mail out of my storage unit Sometimes we don't get what we want What are you talking about? I didn't get my transfer Transfer? To Hawaii The most sought after postal route of them all the air is so dewy sweet, you don't even have to lick the stamps. <laughs> but it's not to be. So I'm hanging it up. You quit the post office? Kind of. I'm still collecting checks, I'm just not delivering mail. 